0: I wonder for you, if there is a point in your life up to which you're willing to receive grace, but then you think you probably need to add a bit more. Maybe you've heard the Christian message. You understand that Christianity is a religion of grace. We believe that we have received unmerited favor from the God of the universe, That he has loved us and he has sent his son to die for us and that's not because of anything that we have done, any worth that we have on our own, but that God in his grace made a way that we could be right with him. For many of us, I hope that you've heard that message before, for many of us, although we've heard it before, it still is hard to really get it. To really get it to the point where there is not a point at which grace stops in our life and we start to try and add things to it, but where all of our life becomes one of grace. Where the points of our life becomes grace, where there is no one and no part of our life that is not saturated in the glory of grace. Well, this tension was one that the early church wrestled with. In the early church, right in the the years after Christ resurrected from the dead and commissioned his church, this was a struggle that the church had. There were people in the church that were preaching grace and were saying, this is how we come to Christ. This is how we're made right with God. And there was a few people in the church that said, yeah, okay. That's a good idea. I'll grant you that that's how maybe God loves us, but we still need to do this stuff these people were called the circumcision party. The circumcision party, uh, it was not that they had parties when there was circumcisions, but they were a group of people who believed that everyone must be compelled to be circumcised, men especially, that the men needed to be circumcised, and they need to be circumcised not just because of that, but because that in particular was a sign of entering the covenant community. For hundreds of years, the, the Jewish people have believed that to, the men to be circumcised meant that they were part of the community, and then following that would abide by the laws and customs of the Jewish tradition. And this is, how, this is what looking, it looked like to embrace a life of following God. Now, I imagine that not many of you in this room have recently faced pressure to be circumcised. And you've probably not recently faced pressure to follow after the Mosaic Law and the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament, so you're thinking, okay, I can just check out on this one. But I think all of us have felt at times in our lives, whether directly from individuals or generally because of the culture we're from, a pressure to abide by a certain set of practices, a certain set of rules. We come to know very quickly if we deviate from those rules because we feel the isolation of loneliness. We feel the pain of shame when we cross the line. And we learn very quickly, oh, we need to stay inside this line. We need to act this way. We need to do these things. Some of you have been taught that very specifically by teachers. Maybe they've been teachers who have made mention of Christ, but really what they're presenting is a religion of works do this. Don't do that. Spend time with these people. Don't spend time with those people. That's the message that's conveyed, and that message is not the gospel. Some of you have experienced this kind of pressure coming from counselors, maybe friends in your life or counselors that you've gone to seek wisdom from, and in the giving of their counsel, you quickly realize that if you don't take their counsel, their wisdom, it's not just a matter of choosing a different idea, they're gonna accuse you of your salvation being at stake. They're gonna doubt that you're really a Christian. This is a religious kind of pressure. Some of you just face this daily as you look at social media. As you're scrolling through, and you see these people living sin-free, struggle-free, financially abundant lives, and then they attribute it to God's blessings you start to think, wow, I guess I need to do what they're doing in order to receive God's blessings. Some of you are straight away from religions that don't even talk about grace. They just preach works. You need to abide by certain practices, pray at certain times, go to certain festivals, do certain fasts. This is how you follow God. In all of these ways, what we're coming up against is things like the early church was facing with the circumcision party. You see, there's something subtle about our world, and it's sometimes very bold, in fact. And that is that our hearts are, are drawn towards behaviorism, we're drawn towards performanceism, we're drawn towards obey in order to be acceptedism. We somehow want that we want to fit in we want to be accepted we want to be approved of and we think we need to do stuff to get there but friends we don't need that we don't need that we need grace we need grace and we don't need grace up into just a certain point and then we fill in the gap we need grace to the point of life itself And in our chapter this morning, that's what Paul's leading us to think about. We're going to look at Galatians chapter 2. So if you see it there in your bulletin, or you can find it in your Bibles or on your screens. In Galatians chapter 2, let me give you a little context to what Paul's doing here. In chapter 1, he's introduced that he an apostle is writing to the Galatians. The Galatians are a group of churches that are in the middle of what's called what's modern-day Turkey. So they're in kind of that northern part of Asia. And unlike Paul's other letters where he's speaking to the Galatians or the Ephesians, the Philippians and he's somewhat encouraged by them and he's trying to remind them of truths of who Jesus is, some theology about the church. With the Galatians he's not taking that approach. He's upset with the Galatians. He's angry with the Galatians. He's concerned about the Galatians. And he makes that clear in the starting verse there in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Paul's saying, Galatians, what is going on? You're turning away from grace. And then he diagnoses exactly how that's happening in chapter 1, verse 10. When he says to them, am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So Paul's laying before these Galatians two options. Two options if if they are going to be not departing from the gospel but clinging to Christ. Their two options are, number one, please man. Seek the approval of man. Man. Be affirmed by men. Or number two, be a servant of Christ. Those two are different options, and they're different options because what these men are trying to do is distort the gospel and take them towards a different gospel. So for the rest of chapter one, he speaks to his testimony, how he was saved by a revelation of Jesus Christ. He came to know who Jesus was. And he followed after him. Not only did he follow after them, but he began preaching throughout Asia. But still unknown to the churches of Judea, it says in verse 22. So, this is for a number of years Paul's preaching in Asia, but back in Judea, in Jerusalem, where the church got started, people don't really know about Paul. So then we pick up in chapter 2. And it says 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. So he goes to Jerusalem, and he thinks what he's gonna do there in Jerusalem is he's gonna have a conversation. He wants to make sure that the gospel that he's preaching out there in Asia is the same gospel that they're preaching back there in Jerusalem. He knows that there's this brewing conversation, this thing that's troubling the Gentiles about should we really Accept grace for all of life? Or do we need to follow these people that are telling us we need to be circumcised? We need to follow the Jewish rules. We need to follow the Jewish culture. It's not enough to have grace. We have to have this culture. He takes with him Barnabas Barnabas is one of the early advocates for Paul. When Paul came to faith in Christ Jesus, Barnabas was one that came and found him and affirmed him to the other believers and said, this guy is for real. He's following Christ now. Barnabas accompanied Paul on his journeys in Asia, preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, saying that, yes, Gentiles are genuinely coming to faith in Jesus. And they take with them Titus, who's one of those Gentile converts. Titus was not of Jewish background like Barnabas and Paul Titus was a Greek. He was a Gentile. Or in the Jewish terminology, he was a sinner. He was someone who was unclean. He was someone who was from a different place. He was from a different background, a different religion. He did not follow the ways of the Jewish community, but he now was following Christ. So Paul and Barnabas and Titus, they go there to Jerusalem, and they seek to have a private meeting with the apostles. They search out for James and for John and for Peter. They get them together in a room. And then Paul says what he did there is that he set before them plainly the gospel that he's preaching in Asia. He wanted to make sure he wasn't wasting his time. Paul says, I'm a busy guy. I'm doing a lot of things. I think that we're preaching the same gospel. You guys there in Jerusalem, me in Asia, can we make sure that we're on the same page? I'm gonna set before you what I'm teaching well, the meeting goes well. The meeting goes really well. If you drop down there to the end, James and Cephas and John, Cephas is Peter. They were the pillars of the church, apostles. It says that they perceived the grace. When they looked at Paul and they, they saw his companions, Barnabas and Titus, what they perceived was grace. And they said, These guys get it. These guys are preaching the same thing that we are preaching. These guys are following the same thing that we are following. These guys are with us. It says they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. This is not just a a shake hands, thanks bro, on the way out the door. The right hand of fellowship is, is a warm and intimate embrace and they're saying we're together in this. We're family. We're brothers on this mission. We affirm what you're doing. It was a good meeting. It was also a challenging meeting. I skipped a little bit there. There's a bit of, of tension that's brewing here in this meeting that leads us into the second story. And that tension is that they weren't alone in the meeting. Paul was seeking to meet privately with those apostles just to have this discussion amongst themselves. But then it says, some people slipped in to spy out our freedom. Paul uses the the language of espionage. There's these secret 007 agents that are coming in to spy out what's going on. They're not looking for government secrets. What Paul says they're trying to do is bring us into slavery. So it sounds like what happened is a few people, these what are called Judaizers, people that don't want the Christian faith to become something that includes Gentiles, They want the Christian faith to be something that is Jewish. They want it to have the Jewish culture and the Jewish forms and the Jewish practices. They want the men to be circumcised. They want the law to be followed. They want to bring them back into what Paul calls slavery. Slavery to the law. Slavery to the approval of man. Slavery to keeping up these practices and abandoning grace. Well, it seems like they were trying to be subtle, They were spies slipping in. Maybe they were just adding a a comment here or a comment there. Throwing some shade there, some shame here. But Paul sees them for what they are. It says, we did not yield in submission to them even for a moment. We heard what they were doing. We saw that they were trying to bring us into slavery, they were trying to add to the gospel, and we resisted it. We didn't yield to them. We didn't let Titus be circumcised. Now, again, that's almost even humorous to our mentality that an adult man would be forced to be circumcised just because he showed up at a meeting. But apparently that was the practice at that time in Jerusalem, that if a Gentile came to faith in Jesus Christ, they were not satisfied with his profession of faith, with his reception of grace. They wanted to add to that and say, okay, that's nice, but you're not really of us until you do this. They don't force Titus to be circumcised. They say that uh, Paul has been commissioned to go to the uncircumcised just as Peter was entrusted. They give him that right hand of fellowship, which must have been a blow to those people that had snuck in and were sneakily trying to bring them into slavery when they see that right hand of fellowship go out to Paul and Barnabas. But even in that, we see a bit of that trouble still brewing. Because Paul and Barnabas, you'll remember, they hadn't traveled alone, did they? Why did only Paul and Barnabas get the right hand of fellowship? Did Titus just miss the closing ceremonies? Was he in the washroom? Why, why, Why is he not there? Why is he not receiving that right hand of fellowship? The text doesn't tell us. We don't know exactly why. But what we do know is what we see in the next story is that Peter didn't really get it. Although he mentally affirmed what Paul was doing, although he said, yes, you're right, Titus doesn't need to be circumcised, he didn't yet fully embrace the reality that the church must be those who have received Christ only by grace and have not added anything to the gospel. Because that's what we see in the second story. In verse 11, it says that Cephas came to Antioch. So we've got a scene change here. We were there down in Jerusalem in Judea. And now we're up in Antioch. And Antioch is a fascinating place. And Antioch is where the, the followers of Christ were first called Christians. Do you know why? The reason is there was nothing else to call them. In Antioch, Jews were coming to faith, Gentiles were coming to faith, they were gathering together as one body. And so what do we call this group? We can't call it Jewish followers of Christ. We can't call it the Gentile group. We don't know what to call this group. We'll just call them Christians. So Antioch had a tremendous history of unity in Christ, of a place where those who were Gentile sinners could fellowship as one with Jewish covenant followers because both were one in Christ. It just seems like Peter gets along with this mentality. When he comes up to Antioch, he's eating with the Gentiles, it says. They're having a great time together. They're having a party together. They're enjoying food together, meals together. And as I'm sure you know, from whatever background you're from, it's not unique to any one culture. When you sit at the table and eat with somebody, when you're at home with your family and you welcome other people to the table, you're saying something about that person. I respect you, you're welcome here. So Peter was saying that to these Gentiles. I respect you, you're welcome here. Peter, the leader of the church, welcoming these Gentiles. But then our not-so-friends show up from Jerusalem. It seems like these people that had slid in quietly into the meeting in Jerusalem had tracked Peter up to Antioch and this time, they're, they're not just sneaking in it. They're making a bold appearance. Paul says that certain men from James came. Now, why would he say that? In Acts uh, 15, James specifically denies that these people came from him. In Acts 15, it says, James says, Now we know that certain men came up to you and have been causing you trouble. We want you to know they did not come by any instruction of ours. It sounds like what's happening is that these men realized that their little movement within Christianity was in trouble. They realized that what happened in Jerusalem meant that Paul was affirmed in this gospel of grace, and if they didn't do something about it in Antioch, then they were going to lose control. They were not going to be able to force people to do what they wanted them to do anymore. So they go up to Antioch where Peter is, and they say, what we're going to do is we're going to trade on the name of James. We're going to say that we came from James, another apostle, and we're going to force Peter to choose. Is he going to be with us or is he going to go with Paul? Because remember, Paul, he's relatively unknown in Judea. Maybe he's known a little bit in Antioch. They respect him. But Peter, Peter's the pillar of the church. Everyone knows Peter. There's no way that if we get Peter, others won't follow us. And they're right. You can almost see this room and how this plays out. Everyone's in there eating together, having a good time. And then walk in the back door, the men from James. And everyone looks around and say, oh, it's those guys. Those guys that don't want us to eat together. Those guys that want us to follow the Old Testament ways, the dietary restrictions. They want us to get circumcised. It's those guys. But then they start to... Whisper to each other, it's okay, Peter's with us. Peter, he's been eating with us, he's been spending time with us, we're fine. But then as they look over, they see Peter, and he's backing away. He's separating himself, the text says. The, the language here actually is the same word used for an army in retreat. This is what Peter does. He draws back and separates himself from the Gentiles because he's afraid, He's afraid of the circumcision party. He's afraid from these men who say they're from James. And so he acts hypocritically. He starts to separate himself. So the Gentiles, now they're like, oh man, Peter. But at least Barnabas is still with us. No, Barnabas is gone too. Barnabas, that early advocate for the Gentile believers, it says that even Barnabas was led astray. The Gentiles are looking around the table. All of the Jewish background believers are gone. It's just us. What are they supposed to think? Their leaders, their friends who they thought were family, suddenly have left them from the table. Certainly the question for them would have been, maybe we're wrong. Maybe these people in the circumcision party are right. Right? Seems like Peter's going with them. Barnabas, who we respect, he's going with them. Maybe we're wrong. Maybe we didn't believe the gospel. It doesn't say here explicitly in the text, but it seems quite likely that this could have even been when they were eating and drinking together the Lord's Supper. In that ceremony of unity in the church, when they come together to break bread together, they were separating In effect, Peter and Barnabas and the others were saying, Gentiles, if you could just sit over there, if you could just be over there at the kid table, we're going to have the real person meal. Well, Paul sees this for what it is. Paul sees this for what it is. This isn't just a one-time offense. This is not just a cultural slight. This is the preaching of a different gospel. This is the preaching of a different gospel because these leaders were communicating to those Gentiles, you need to do something more than receive grace. You need to be something more. You need to act in a certain way. You've got to do some stuff if you want to be with us. So Paul poses him to his face. It says, because Peter stood condemned. He says to Peter before them all in verse 14, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew... How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Bit of a tongue twister, so let me try and iron that out for you. What Paul is asking Peter is he's saying, okay, Peter, you're you're from a Jewish background. You're someone who followed the Jewish customs. You're from that community. And all the time here in Antioch, you've been over here eating with the Gentiles. You've been showing the Gentiles that as a Jew, you can be like a Gentile. But now, by the way you're acting, you're communicating to those Gentiles that they need to come and be like you. That's called hypocrisy. That's called doing one thing but expecting other people to do something differently. It's called a false gospel. And then in the rest of chapter two, Paul tells us explicitly what he's been laying out in these stories. Look at verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Again, Paul's almost stumbling over his words as he he tries to get out how important this is, what he's saying. Three times in this verse, he says, justification, justification, justified, justified. Three times he says, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, faith in Christ. What's he communicating? Justification, being made right with God, comes through Jesus Christ. Period. Full stop. There's no works that we can add, there's nothing that we can do to be made with, right with God other than being in Jesus Christ. He is the one who has paid the penalty for sin. He is the one who fulfilled the law perfectly in every place. Only in Christ can we be made right with God. That is how we are justified. So he reminds them of that conviction, but then he also answers this concern because the concern on the part of the Judaizers, the circumcision party, is okay so you're made right with God through Christ, but how do you stay right? How do you, how do you live it? How do you do the stuff? Well, Paul's answer is by grace. Their answer was the law. Their answer was do these things, be this way, come join our community. That's how you live rightly. Well, Paul says there's another way. Let me read these verses. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Certainly not. He's, he's saying they're accusing us of, of making Christ a servant of sin because we're not requiring this law. He says, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, if I rebuild what I tore down, so if I put a law back on, I'm putting back what I tore down I got rid of the law when I was in Christ. Christ fulfilled it. It's done. And so now you're trying to make me rebuild what I tore down. Well, then I prove myself to be a transgressor because that's what the law does. What the law does is show us how wrong we are. What the law does is show us our, how we should be convicted of sin, that we have not fulfilled it. That's what the law does. And so what Paul is saying is, Wait a second. So you're saying we're made right by grace, but then the way that we live by grace is to remember how terrible we are and to set up another law to remind us how short we come to it. Well, Paul says if we do that, what we're doing is we're nullifying the grace of God. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So when Paul is facing this accusation that you know, Paul, if you talk about grace too much, if you preach this message of grace, if you expect grace to be something that can handle all of our life, that grace not only makes us right with God in Christ Jesus, but grace can make us right in our life on a day-to-day basis as we follow him, what you're doing is promoting sin. What Paul does is he points to our union with Christ. Now, that's interesting. I hope you're talking with me here. Because normally what we would do and what the, the Judaizers would do is not point to our union with Christ but try to control the problem. The problem is sin. We do wrong things. We do bad things. We gotta control that. We gotta put a law on it. And what Paul says is, no, we don't wanna put a law on it. We wanna remember that that person is in Christ. Not just theoretically. Paul says that I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So, Paul's saying, in a very real way, when Christ was on the cross, having fulfilled the law, I was there. You were there. Not that we were paying the penalty for the sins of the world, but we were there in the sense of we were made worthy. We were made worthy to receive righteousness and justification because of our union with Christ. His worth becomes our worth. God looks at us now and he doesn't see a person who received grace that needs to do some more stuff. God looks at us now and he says, it is finished. It's finished. It's finished for you. It's finished for you. It's finished for you because of Christ. I don't nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So Paul's saying, hey, we didn't get justified this way. We didn't get made right with God by working for it. So there's no way that that gospel will then translate into us now working to stay right. No, we stay in Christ, and he makes us righteous. I want to end with a few observations A few observations of how we might, from this text, not nullify the grace of God. Another translation from verse 21 says, I do not set aside the grace of God. So for Redeemer Church, for us here this morning, how are we going to be the kind of people that doesn't set aside the grace of God? That doesn't say, yes, thank you for Jesus, but I know I need to work really hard. But we cling to grace. What would that look like? Let me give you three. First, remember you are loved. Remember you are loved. Did you see that in verse 20? Where Paul is speaking of how he's been crucified with Christ. He's speaking about how it's no longer he who lives, but Christ who lives in him. He lives by faith in the Son of God. He's trusted in him for salvation. And then he reflects on the Son of God. He reflects on Jesus And he has this comment, who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, your problem in life is not that you aren't working hard enough. It's not that you're not perfect yet. It's not that you didn't meet your resolutions from 2019. It's not that you haven't been to enough festivals and done enough fasts and prayed at the right times. Your problem is is that you haven't adequately embraced the love that is yours in Jesus Christ. God loves you. And there's no qualification to that. It's not that he loves you if you deal with this problem. He loves you because of Christ Because when he looks at you, he sees one who has been crucified with Christ and in his love for his son, which is his love in and of himself, he extends to you. So friend, remember that you are loved. Do not, let me just say it this way, do not seek to enter this year, another year of opportunity to grow, to change, to develop, to use whatever gifts and resources that you have To work on your problems, your stress, your trials, another year to do all those things, don't try and do it from any power other than the fact that you are loved. When you think of your relationship with God, do you primarily think of the love that He has extended to you, or do you primarily think of a list of things you need to do to please Him? Erase the list, embrace the love. Here's the second one. Remember you're loved? Resist the pull to legalism. Legalism is another term for what's happening here from this circumcision party. Yes, there was ethnic problems. Yes, there was cultural problems that were happening there that were unique to this time in Galatians 2. But at the baseline fact of what's happening here is legalism. This idea that we're going to put a law down and you need to follow it to be part of us. So friends, I just want you to resist that. I want you to resist that. I already asked you one question. Do you see that list of things to do? But let me ask that again in this context. One way that you can resist legalism, resist following a set of rules, is by when you think of growing in Christ, do you think primarily just of sin management? Either sin hiding and concealment? Or do you think of sin attack modes well, I need to do this or do that, get this software, talk to this person, do this thing. You might have some temporary success, but if you don't root out what's going on in your heart, resist the legalism, look at the heart. What do you love? You're not going to make any progress. Another way to resist legalism is to think about who you're comfortable with. One thing that reveals our legalistic hearts, is when we, just like is happening here in Galatians 2, start to think about who are we eating with? Who are we spending time with? Who are the people that we think are a little outside of who we're comfortable with? Maybe it's because of how they present themselves, the clothes that they wear, the, the culture that they seem to be from, the group that they are part of, that you think, oh, they're part of that group. I can't Spend time with that group. This happens even in the church. I know that we're a multicultural, multinational church, but if you think about your dinner table over the last year, did your dinner table reflect a commitment to only spending time with a certain kind of person? Maybe you didn't set out to do that, but that's what happened. We don't want to spend time with them, we're worried about them. They have a different mentality. They have a different philosophy. They have a different approach to life. I'm concerned about this thing or that thing. It's okay to have legitimate concerns sometimes, especially when we're talking to those people about those concerns. Hearing from them, learning from them, speaking from what we see in scriptures to try and encourage them, that's resisting legalism. Legalism comes up when the barriers go up. But the gospel breaks down the barriers, the walls of hostility, makes us one in Christ Jesus. So friends, resist the legalism. Lastly, regain your passion for the lost. Remember you're loved. Resist legalism. Resist being accepted by your works. And lastly, regain your passion for the lost. Why do I mention this? Remember back in the first story that we told. One of the ways that they perceived the grace that was given to Paul is the clarity of his calling to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And not only the clarity of his calling to go and preach to them, but the result, the fruit that Titus was before their very eyes. So how could they say no? Because they see the fruit of the gospel. What I've observed in the Christian life in my own heart and in the church is one of the quickest ways to legalism, one of the quickest ways to forgetting how we are loved in Christ is to lose our passion for the lost. And conversely, one of the quickest ways to Amplify our love for the Lord and to realize how much we are loved by Him and to realize how many of the things that we hold dear actually don't matter is to try and explain the gospel to someone who's far from it. When we share the gospel with people that are not part of the church, what we realize is that there is a core that's essential to the church, to the the gospel, and to the church it's the grace of God. And then, as we communicate that day after day to people that are just learning about it for the first time, what we end up realizing is what's most essential. We end up cherishing the gospel for what it's worth. And what we end up doing is we stop caring as much about the little things that we've come to dress ourselves in, adorn ourselves in, that divide us from other Christians and other people. Regain your passion for the lost. If you do, what you'll see is that Christ is seeking and saving the lost. So friends, let 2020 be a year like this for us at Redeemer Church, a year where we experience the love of the Father through Jesus Christ. We trust in his grace and not our ability to follow a certain set of laws And what that leads us out is to a passionate gospel-advancing, gospel-proclaiming people because we are captivated by his grace to the point of our whole life. And let's pray to that end. Our Father, we pray, trusting in the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for Paul. Thank you that he stood up to Peter, that he stood up to these people from the circumcision party and he preserved the gospel So that we know that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, that we might come to your Son and experience life. Lord, free us from the burden of the law. Free us from the burden of pleasing other people. May we rest in your grace and the great love that you've shown us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.